And that we might know and see him and trust him this morning, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. If you're visiting Wallace, thank you so much for joining us. We started a study in this epistle a number of weeks ago. This is the Apostle Peter, who knew Jesus, denied Jesus the night he was betrayed, and has given us this letter written to suffering and persecuted believers in the first century. The word of the Lord, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested Genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Honey, I have a present for you. Oh, goody, what is it? I bought you soap and sponges for the kitchen sink. Not really. We kind of have a rule in our household. We buy what are necessities, and you give gifts of things that aren't really necessities. And yet, when God saves you, he gives you a gift that is also a necessity. He gives you eyes to see what is unseen. You could call it supernatural sight. When God saves you, you receive a gift that is also a necessity. The ability to see with spiritual eyes what is otherwise unseen. Think about the beginning of the Christian life. God gives you the gift of being born again. It's verse 3, according to his great mercy, he caused you to be born again. He brought new life to a dead heart. We are incapable and undesirous and completely unwilling of moving towards God. Well, God created that in us and gave us as a gift the sight of the supreme, surpassing glory of Jesus as our Savior. What a gift. And spiritual sight is not only this gift that begins the Christian life, it is a necessity that is throughout the Christian life. 
we see what is otherwise unseen. In the case of those to whom Peter writes, three things based on this text. God gives us sight of the unseen future by faith. The future by definition is unseen. But what a gift to see the future by faith, and so they rejoiced in hope. Secondly, they saw the unseen purposes of their trials, and so they endured them with patience. And thirdly, they saw the unseen Jesus by faith, and so they rejoiced with love. Those are the three things these believers are experiencing because God gave them the gift and the necessity of supernatural eyes. And all of this is cause for worship. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this comes from God. So praise Him, exalt Him, adore Him, rejoice in Him, glory in Him, blessed be the Lord. We should just stop and like for an hour bless the Lord. For these gifts, we won't. So number one, God gives you in your salvation package this blessed supernatural sight of seeing the unseen, of first of all, an unseen future by faith such that they rejoice with hope. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice. Raises what question? What is the this we're supposed to be rejoicing in? I believe it's everything in verses 3 to 5, the focus of which is hope. This is one of those words where American parlance is not helpful. We typically use the word hope in our language to wish for something that's uncertain and unseen. I hope my favorite team wins the game later today. That's unseen right now. It's uncertain, but that's what I'm wishing for. That is not the biblical sense of hope. It's much better translated confident assurance. Hope is an absolute certainty of the future, though it is unseen. And that future is enjoying the presence of God in paradise forever. But Peter calls it a living hope. Did you notice that phrase from the song Andy had a sing earlier? You sung about a living hope. That tells you a couple of things. First of all, the hope that we have by spiritual sight in our hearts is alive. It means it should grow. And honestly, sometimes I feel like in my soul, my hope is as big as a pea. Sometimes as large as a watermelon and everything in between. My hope can vacillate. My experience, my confident assurance of the unseen future can be all over the map. But more importantly, he says you have been born again into a living hope through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The reason our hope is alive is our hope is in Christ. Jesus is the source and the content of our hope. <laughs> And the reason we can be so certain is not in our own performance, but because of what Jesus has done for us. He is the living Savior. 
So your hope is living because your Savior has been raised from the dead. He lives in an indestructible body. If by faith you have been united to Jesus Christ, you're alive. Your hope is indestructible because Jesus is indestructible. Your future can't perish because Jesus can't perish. Everything in the Christian life hangs on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's no such faith as such thing as hope. There's no such thing as a future. There's no such thing as paradise without a risen Savior. This is exactly where Peter annexes our hope. So you can be certain that your hope is sure, though unseen, because it is in the risen Jesus. Now, Peter wants you to see that a little bit more, so he gets specific about the guaranteed nature of your future, enjoying the presence of God in Jesus Christ, basking in the glory of God. The presence of Jesus is nothing less than pure love, pure joy, pure wisdom, pure holiness, everything that's God. You will be utterly and unspeakably, speechlessly transformed in the presence of the glory of God. That's what's certain about our future. That's what we can see with, un, un, uh, with our spiritual eyes. Peter wants them to unpack this a little bit. So verse 4, he says, you've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. Now, if you're a first century Jewish believer and you heard the word inheritance, what immediately comes to your mind? Your inheritance as a first century Jew is the land of Canaan. That's your inheritance. But what do we know about the land of Palestine and the land of Canaan? It can be defiled. It can fade. It's corruptible. In fact, some would make the case that what it looks like today is nowhere near what it looked like back uh, when, when the tribes first took it because it's been defiled by the sin of the nation. Different discussion for a different day. But because we belong to Christ, everything that's Christ is ours by inheritance. The risen Jesus will reign over a renewed, pristine cosmos, what we call the new heavens and the new earth. It all belongs to Jesus, and it belongs to you if you belong to Jesus. That is your inheritance. And Peter wants to, you to visualize the irrevocable nature of the permanence of it, so he uses these words. It's imperishable, not subject to decay. You know, everything you see in this room is going to decay. It's all going to be gone one day, everything you see in this room. But the resurrected, imperishable body of Jesus Christ is not, and if you're united to him by faith, then that is true of you. That is your certain future hope. It's undefiled. That means our future in the new heavens and the new earth cannot be attacked by sin, sadness, death, sorrow, sickness. It will be none of that can, can uh, touch it. That's your future, unseen hope. It will not fade away. This word was used of flowers. We've all seen flowers in their spry state, and then they fade away. The glory and the beauty, because of the imperishable risen body of Jesus that absolutely cannot change. And so everything about the new kingdom Jesus is reigning over cannot change. It is unable to fade away. And then he says it is kept in heaven for you. The verb kept is a perfect passive tense. What that means for you and me is it already exists. So you make a hotel reservation. 
Sir, would you like to guarantee this with a credit card? Yes, I would. What does that mean? It means that no matter how late I get to the hotel, I'm absolutely certain the room is there for me. I paid for it. Christ's future enjoyment of you in the new heavens and the new earth is absolutely certain because he has paid for it. It is guaranteed. God's holding the reservation. Why? He wants you there with his son. And when trials and persecution and hardship threatens our soul, what do we wonder? Will I make it there? Will I make it through? And so Peter assures them in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is not simply protecting your future inheritance. He's protecting you for it. The word guard referred to soldiers protecting a fort or keeping somebody from escape. And so our certain hope is predicated on the fact that God will keep you from escaping him. God will guard you and protect you to give you to his son, Jesus, to enjoy him forever. After all, this is exactly what Jesus prayed to his father for in John 17. Father, I desire that they whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. His Father is committed to answering that prayer. Jesus wants you beholding his glory. His Father will see that that happens. Trust him by faith. Give your life to him. Believe in him. Trust him. And the Father gives you to his Son. John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I lose none of those whom he has given me, but will raise them up on the last day. Now, why will we be raised on the last day? This is your future, unseen, certain hope, a resurrected body to enjoy forever in a resurrected cosmos. Nothing short of that that is not subject to decay, change, sin, sorrow, sickness, sadness, or death. Jesus put it this way in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Why? He will ensure you enjoy his glory forever. This is the plan of God. I, I love the way in 1 Peter, not only is the work of your salvation the work of the, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but salvation is talked of as in terms of past tense, present, and future. We'll see that as we move along. How are you protected? You're protected not in your own strength, but through the power of God. And what power does God use to keep you for Jesus? Through faith. I read this article on this former NFL great, professional football player, who in old age, his arthritis was so bad that when he went to grip a golf club, he had to have his friends literally turn his hands and put it onto the club, or he'd have no hope of gripping the golf club. Now, beloved, when you take hold of Jesus as your Savior and Lord, it is because God the Holy Spirit is turning the hands of your heart on to the promise of his salvation. He is not letting you let go. 
He won't. You're too precious to Him. And so the eyes of our hearts are very active, as it were. Looking back in faith to what God has promised, looking forward to the future in hope. Faith and hope are very related. Very related. But notice he says in verse 5, he's guarding you for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's that future aspect of salvation. You know these TV shows, Home Makeover, where somebody lives in a dilapidated house and they, they, they put them in a hotel for a week or two or a month and the people go to work and they do a makeover and then they come down the street, they stand in front of it, but there's a big curtain either between them and the street or a big curtain over the house and there's the moment. Your new house revealed. They usually stand there speechless. Your salvation has yet to be revealed. It is the glory of Jesus, the one you've hoped in. And it is you being like him in glory. The famous Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, little faith will get your soul to heaven. Big faith will get heaven into your soul. It's the kind of faith I want, and I don't always have. Let me tease out for you, as before I move to point two, some evidences that you're living by faith in your future hope. And they're all negative, and they all begin with D. If you're living by faith, you're not driven. Driven people have something to prove. And they often end up angry, frustrated, and discouraged because their goals aren't being met. Because usually they're out of their control. You're not driven. If you're living by faith in your future hope, you're also not dilatory. That means passive, doing nothing. No, Proverbs says it's the precious possession of a man. Diligence is. So faith takes risks for the sake of Jesus. The evidence you're living by faith in a living hope is you're not driven, you're not dilatory, you're not demanding the best is yet to come. I don't have to spend all my resources creating heaven on earth. I have a better and more certain future. Jesus said, store up yourselves treasures where they can't wear out. It's not driven, it's not dilatory, it's not demanding, it's not distracted by useless pursuits. Here's the way Paul instructed his young protege, Timothy, in that regard. He says, uh, 2 Timothy 2, 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So there's a new motive, a new goal, pleasing Jesus. A new litmus test. I want to do this. Does it please the Lord? I'm interested in this. Does it distract me from being a faithful soldier in the Lord's army? Living faith in a future hope is not driven, it's not dilatory, it's not demanding, it's not distracted, nor is it demeaning of others who have no faith. Because you know the reason you have faith is God gave it to you in spite of you. And so with this faith, we, won't, we don't demean people who don't have faith. We want to tell them about Jesus and the hope that can be theirs as well. Last two points are shorter. We are saying what? When God saves you, he gives you much more than soap and sponges for the kitchen sink. He gives you the gift of seeing the unseen. 
These things are both gifts and necessary for the Christian life. So number two, seeing the unseen purposes of their trials by faith so that they endured. Look at verse six. You're now grieved by various trials. There's some persecution going on in the Roman Empire at this time. Not quite, it's probably written before the time of Nero. It got worse under Nero, but they're feeling the pressure. But trials are very broad. They can be all kinds of trials, sickness trials, trials with your kids, trials at work. It's a, it's a fluid concept. And the word grieved here is the same word that's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Grieved, so grieved, he's sweating like drops of blood. That's how intense their suffering is. Why is God allowing this? Is the question we all inevitably ask. Why is he allowing this? What's the answer? Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying? There are two kinds of faith in Jesus. There is faith that is genuine. There is faith that is not genuine. What ultimately proves the difference between these two kinds of faith? What happens to them when they are tested by trials? Genuine faith is tested and it gets stronger. It proves to be real faith. Non-genuine faith, if that's the word, is tested and, like gold, one of the most endurable precious metals on the earth, like gold, burns up. It disappears. Peter is saying, you've got genuine faith. God is not punishing you with these trials. Far from it. He is like the smelter heating up that gold to burn off the dross to burn off the impurities because the truth is in your heart and mine, oh, we have faith. Oh, he's given us eyes to see the unseen. But there's a lot of mistrust in our hearts, a lot of impurity. So in God's economy, how does he typically get the junk in our hearts out when we live in the lap of luxury or through trials? It's in trials. God puts us in the furnace to refine and prove the reality and the sincerity of our faith. Not a cause for panic. I've never commuted on a subway, but I'm told that people who ride subways to get to work, they have experiences where they stop in the middle of a dark tunnel, everything shuts down. Nobody panics because they know somewhere, someone has us under control and is going to fix it. We're not panicking our suffering. Somewhere, someone, unseen, in control, is in control is in charge. And he'll never give us more than we can handle. One of the beautiful things about God burning the dross out of our hearts is the goal of the smelter is he's going to heat up the gold to a certain temperature, burn off the impurities, and he knows that task is finished when he can see his own reflection in the surface of the gold. God is burning away our impurities to see the reflection of his son Jesus in our hearts. Is that a good thing? Is that a desirable thing? Is that a hard thing? Yes. There's grief. There's suffering. There's way too much in my soul self-confidence, self-reliance, and false trust. Nothing shows them to me. 
like trials. My pastor in seminary, Jack Miller, he founded the New Life Churches in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Uh, he wrote this. He struggled with cancer towards the end of his life, and he wrote this. The practice of joy in suffering is much more than an emotion. It's essentially an attitude. It's a settled disposition to say no to self-pity, fear, and passivity. Joy in suffering is a series of actions that move from self-preoccupation to caring for others. The chief action is seeking grace from God to serve others enthusiastically. Gold will perish, your faith won't. God preserves it until the day of Christ when it will no longer be necessary. When Jesus appears, faith, hope, you don't need them. Because there's, this, there's our hope, Jesus. will be in his presence. And he says something, he says, at the revelation of, of, of his glory, that will be, your faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Who's getting the praise and glory and honor? Jesus or you? It's impossible to tell grammatically. Maybe he wants to think about both. Jesus heaping on you praise, glory, and honor as we cast our crowns before the king, giving him praise and glory and honor. Do you see that your life's most precious possession is your faith? What do you do to safeguard it? What do you do to preserve it? What do you do to enrich it? What do you do... To, uh, to protect it. It's your most precious possession. Last point. A gift that's also a necessity. He gives us the ability to see the unseen. And specifically seeing the unseen Jesus by faith so they are rejoicing with love. Very few people in history have seen Jesus. Right? In the history of the world. It's a tiny, 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 tiny number. And millions upon millions upon millions believe in him. You may not be a follower of Jesus. You may not be a church person. You may not believe in the God of the Bible. And you're wondering what is wrong with these people. They've never seen Jesus. But they apparently love him. And believe in him. You're right, we do. It is true. And we haven't seen him. How? Through the eyes of faith. Believing is Seeing. Believing is seeing. Peter says, you've not seen him, but you believe. You've not seen him, but you love him. And you're rejoicing with joy that is inaccessible. How does that happen? It is the Holy Spirit's pleasure to take the testimony of Jesus Christ in the word of God and open your heart and shine a light on Jesus and convince your heart that, though unseen, is real. He, though unseen, is risen from the dead. And that event that took place in history 2,000 years ago really, truly, historically, in fact, happened, and I can count on that for my salvation. God makes a promise, and the Holy Spirit gives you the supernatural ability to set your eyes on it and to believe it. It's just an amazing thing. If you're not a believer in Jesus, none of us think we're anything special for having believed. We believe because God gave us the gift. You can ask him right now for the gift. He'll give it to you. Ask him to cause you to see Jesus. Let me tease out one way this works. In a normal progression, here's the way this works. 
what do you see? You see, first of all, the cause of his death. Looking at the testimony of Scripture, the dying of Jesus, the Holy Spirit shows you, I caused that death. He's getting what I deserved. He's dying in my place. He's suffering what I should be suffered. I offended him. He's taking the offense. I've been indifferent to the glory of God. Jesus is standing in the way of the wrath of God for my sin. That produces sadness, grief, sorrow, repentance, conviction, guilt. All that's really good. I caused his death. Secondly, he shows you the nature of his death. Jesus is, in fact, suffering unspeakable torments of body and soul. It's just a little picture of what our sins deserve, which is very hard, ultimately, to imagine. The Holy Spirit shows you the cause of his death, the nature of his death, and the accomplishment of his death. Through that one death, you're forgiven, accepted, cleansed, what we call justified. God takes your sin puts it into the body of Jesus and gives to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus so that you owe God nothing. Jesus gave it all. Your sin is removed. And Jesus says, as much as you were against me, I am for you now. And there's this real strangeness in the suffering of Jesus. Strangeness. Jesus suffered for joy. So, so Peter, writing to Christians who are suffering, is encouraging them to rejoice. Where does that start initially? It's there is a joy at the end of Jesus' suffering. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, we are looking to Jesus, the founder and author of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You're the joy. Jesus suffered to make you his. For the joy of claiming you, a rebel, a wretch, an enemy, making you his best friend. This is what God specializes in. Profoundly, dramatically changing those who are completely incapable of changing themselves. And this is so fantastic that the word Peter uses for rejoice here is not found in any of the secular literature of Peter's day. It's, not, it's only in the Bible because it's so otherworldly. And so, beloved, the eyes of your heart, what do they need to see? You've got to ask yourself, what is blinding the eyes of my heart from seeing this Jesus that I love him and rejoice with joy and glory that's inexpressible? What's blinding the eyes of my heart? Because to see Jesus, whose glories are inexhaustible, will give you that joy and love. What's standing in the way? It's not Jesus who would give himself to you, give his spirit to you, to see him and rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, otherworldly joy, otherworldly love, but this worldly faith and hope, we need it. We pray by your Holy Spirit, you would enlarge our hope a living hope because it's alive in union with Jesus, our risen King. Fill us with hope. To live with hope, with assurance, with confidence, with joy and trial, ever seeing Jesus, lover of our souls. In his name.